Introducing Amazon Freebie, where you can feel free to unwind with The West Wing, laugh with Judy Justice, or get even with Bosch Legacy. Discover award-winning originals and unmissable movies and TV, all without subscription. Stream free on Fire TV, Apple TV, Android TV, and mobile apps, all via Prime Video. Whatever you're in the mood for, we got you. Freebie. Would you believe it? Podcast number 100. Here we are. Been doing these now. This is our second year. And you guys are suggesting guests. And you've took us down the road of Epstein and SRA and Satanism and all this other fascinating stuff. We have a huge story for Podcast 100 with numerous twists and turns. We've got Brian Knox in the studio. If you're not familiar, it involves drug abuse, Satanism, martial arts, all kinds of acts of criminality, including violence that ends in incarceration. And then we have a redemption and a role played by one of our other guests who has been hugely popular, John Lawson. If you haven't seen that podcast, Hit Team Commander, it's in the link in the description box, True Crime Playlist. And then we've got Brian's ultimate redemption after his battle with his demons, which goes on for years and years. Thank you very much for coming on, Brian. Would you just like to tell people a bit about yourself to start with, who you are and where you grew up, where you came from? Yeah, my name is Brian Knox. I was born in Edinburgh on uh, 10th of July, 1969. You're probably the first Scot we've had on that the Americans might be able to understand. Apart from John Lawson. <laughs> oh, a, yeah? He's only a bit Scottish, though, isn't he? <laughs> he sounds he? like a cockney, doesn't he, He's John been Lawson. everywhere. He's lived everywhere, yeah. <laughs> so, grew up in Scotland, and I've been reading your book, first couple of chapters, The Draft, and what was your childhood like? Well, my childhood was, I would say it was uh, no normal compared to a lot of people. I, I wasn't brought up really um, with my mum and dad being present. Like, you know, my mum and dad split up when I was about three years old. And then me and my mother, we went to live with my grandmother. And were you happy living with your granny? Yeah, I was very happy living with her, yeah. But you started to show signs of unrest, didn't you, as a kid? Yeah, I was I was like when I was in my bedroom I used to like be very scared of the dark. I used to think I used to see dark shadows on the walls and shapes and things like that. I used to scream and scream, you know, like ter- I was like terrified as a child. And then my grandmother used to come into the lounge and um say, Let me go to her bed and when I went to her she just let me sleep in her bed and she used to pray over me in the name of Jesus. And you had a romantic streak. You stole a ring at age four and gave it to your girlfriend. Uh, that was, a, I think that's been a bit of the downfall in my life, actually. Is, <laughs> is, uh, I shouldn't be laughing as women, really, you know. Um, Someone that's, yeah, too many. You said you hit puberty early and you had very early sexual experiences. Very, too early, yeah. Do you want to expand on that a bit? Well, I'll just say that, I mean, let me explain about the ring first. What happened, there was in my grand's house and I met this young guy I was about four or five year old and I thought do you know what I'm going to give her this ring and I nicked my grand's ring and then I went round and gave her the ring and my grand was like where's my ring where's my ring and I was like 
I think it was probably the first thing I stole actually was the ring really and uh, I got a severe telling off and my grand went down to the house and retrieved the ring back. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a period where you got bullied. Yeah, my school, during school, um, I remember that my first day I was at school, my mum was a very bad timekeeper, always has been, still is actually. When my mum's in the airport, she'll expect the plane to wait on her to get on it, you know. Um, so, first day at school, arrived late. I was meant to be in one class. Um, they decided that class was too full, about 15, 20 minutes late. They put me in another class. So, right from the very off, I was sort of feeling reasonably like, um, you know, like the odd one out sort of thing. And people who get bullied often internalize it and come up with countermeasures. And in your life history, martial arts becomes a thing for you, doesn't it? Well, I can, I can remember the first sort of fight I had at school, really. Um, there was a boy called Peter Stark. He ended up a policeman. I seen him years later. In the, he was a policeman. I was a criminal at the time then, but I seen him years later as a policeman and I can remember even at primary school having a fight with this kid outside and he took a chunk practically at my leg. Even at a very young age at primary school. Anyway, I've ended up, unfortunately, um, hurting him and we went to the headmaster's office. It was the time when the belt was there. Put the hands out on top of each other. Whack, whack. And that was a, probably something that's missing for school nowadays. I think the discipline of young kids is completely gone out the window isn't it they're spoiled aren't they mm. so i do karate i've got a bow you had a situation with a bow a guy was being a bully and you took matters into your own hand well i think i think you have to go back quite earlier to when like my mum was at the house and she got a boyfriend her name was terry his name was terry and we went from my grands to live with my mum we lived at, i think it was my granddad at first and then we moved into a house in forester park in edinburgh but he was quite a, he was a bit, he was a bully, you know, he used to beat me. He was an older man. I mean, my mum was out at work. There was, a, there was continual um, beatings most day. He didn't like me from minute one. There was a stepbrother there. And uh, yeah, so he, he, he enjoyed beating me up, really. And your stepbrother always wanted to do the opposite of what you wanted to do. Absolutely. Absolute opposite of what I wanted to do, yeah. Do you think that the internalisation then of being bullied, being a victim, you channel that into martial arts and you weren't going to allow that to happen to other people? That's why you picked up the bow that day. I think I think what happened was I was at that school and I was going through quite a bit at that school and it was time to go into the secondary school and all them went to one called Tynecastle. And I, had this, I, I was out the area, so I was going to Forrester. So it was a new sort of beginning for me. So I sort of went to Forrester School, which which was in an area called Broomhouse, near Broomhouse, uh, uh, Sight Hill, Wester Hills area. In Edinburgh, I went to Forrester Park and I went there and I, I got taken to a local karate class. I think some kid beat me up or something just before that and I thought, do you know what? I thought someone took me to martial arts. I was very young, I was 12, 12 years old and I... I just took to it like a fish out water, I think. And, you know, I remember the kid that beat me up and I thought, I'm going to do this martial arts. And I went over and I 
beat him unfortunately and um some paper i think he was a paper boy or something and um after that that was it i was sort of on the road with the martial arts and uh it was something i sort of got into over into really it was the time bruce lee and all that stuff so the television and you know you get a bit overwhelmed with it and all that and it really became even at that age it was like a lifestyle you know like weapons and all different things like that and then what happened was everything was sort of coming to you know the beatings were my mum used to go to work and the beatings were getting worse and worse sometimes I was like knocked senseless really I was like I can remember my friend came to the door to get me one day and um, he gave me a couple of beatings and then I told my friend I said he's an idiot or something I just got the hand behind the door pulled the hair in pulled me up pulled me up the stairs and then pulled me along the stairs along the hall sort of thing and uh, was giving me good wellies like you know what a cowardly bastard picking on a kid like that well do you know what I think that I totally forgive him totally forgive him now um, I think that he had his problems himself he was um, brought up in children's homes you know, I was aware of that. He, he had a very, very difficult upbringing. And sometimes you probably realise by the people that you interview, your background, your area where you're born, your family you're born into, it makes a difference to everybody, you know, especially when people have like broken homes and that. You know, they, they have something missing. If a dad's missing or a mum's missing, um, you know, it causes problems, doesn't it? Because the perfect that balance his mother and father, isn't it? If a, if a dad's there with a kid on it, on their own, there's always something missing. If a mother's there with a kid on their own, there's always something missing, you know? Behind a lot of crimes is a story of child abuse. Hmm? There's always a child abuse story behind yeah. a lot of crimes. It's, it's really sad. A lot of the guys we've interviewed have had that to be the case, yeah. yeah. I think my mother, my mother was, you know, my mother worked. My mother went out very early. She used to come, but she was a driving instructor. She used to drive around Edinburgh in the, in the car, and she used to, she used to if um, people used to um, make a mistake, she used to hit their hand with a handbrush. <laughs> yeah, so so what happened was basically um, I'm getting into these martial arts, and I'm getting beaten really in that as well. And, and um, one day, one day I got a call that this guy who was a bully at school, I had a couple of fights with him, and he was a big, big guy, you know. Um, first he was bullying everybody and I thought you know what I thought I'm going to I can't have, really have this anymore and I, I tried my best and I can remember the first time I went into the classroom and the teacher said Knox you look like you've been put through a washing machine you know so uh, yeah that's what happened and you know I was messing around at school a lot you know my behaviour at school was completely outrageous really um I had I had problems at school, yeah, with with, with behaviour and things like that, and I think everything happened at the same time. Really, my my gran, who I used to go down and see, um, she she had got cancer, and I was and I, I didn't even know much about. It. I was just a young boy, really. I think I was about thirteen or fourteen year old, and I went to the hospital and um, to see her, and she was dead. She did taken her out of the bed, so mm. I got back, and then I got the news it happened, and. I was really upset and I just looked to the stars and I says God I hate you and I'm going to do everything I can to be wrong and I said I, 
I'll worship Satan. And when I said that, I looked at the stars, my I had tears in my eyes. I was like broken. And it was the very next day, actually, that um, my karate instructor gave me a bow. And this kid, had, I had a friend that was at Forrester High School. He was walking up the road in the sky. I went up behind his head with a brick and smacked the back of his head with a brick. And I, I just thought, really, that was it, really. I snapped and uh, I went along to the shopping centre and I went and hit him. With, I went to the side and it missed him. It missed his uh, head. He had an ulster earring on and it hit his earring. And he says, he says, if you do that again, you little... I can't say the words now, but... You can, you're all right. No, no, but be, you know. Yeah. He said, I put your, your head through the railings. And I went, really? I said, oh, well, you know, and I stepped back and I hit him full force with the bow, um, swung it into his head and... I don't know how he got up and knocked him back about ten feet. And um, if, I, if 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 I, if he'd never got up, I would have probably repeatedly um, put on his head. Unfortunately, but thank God this day he got up. He ran. I chased him up the road, and um, that was it. The police were called, and um, yeah, I was thrown out of school for that actually. And what was your mum's um, reaction to that? Well, my mum's reaction was, you know, I could, she, I could, in my mum's eyes, I could never do any wrong. You know, and at, at the same time, the, the stepdad left. It was like a, the stepdad had left the house. He left the house and he said to my mother that he'd been paying the rent and that, and the, the mortgage. And uh, we found out three or four months later that, you know, they'd been paying the mortgage and we got evicted for our house. Mm. So I had to go and live with my uncle. And um, my mum lived at Marty's. What was it like living at your uncle's? Different. In what way? Well, I went in there and um, it was good. It was good. My uncle was, a, he was like my grand's brother. It was a, you know, my, um, my great uncle. I went to live with him and um, I stayed in his house, stayed in a room and there were all bikers and that. A lot of bikers and very heavy, heavy metal music like ACDC. And things like that. And um, I just got involved with the gangs. Became a skinhead. Stayed in that house for a while. The, the, my auntie was quite... Um, my auntie was quite wicked, actually. I would go in there and she said, you... In, she says, in the morning, you get a bit of toast. She says, at night you get dinner. She said, I don't want you going near that fridge at all. So it was quite... Um, an experience, really, you know. And during that time, I was just getting involved in the the gangs, really, in um, house and estate wars, you know, like we have, like, um, like Wester Hills and Broomhouse or Broomhouse and Sockton. There would always, every night, be, like, um, gangs. And I even some young people, even at, I can, I can remember, 13, 14-year-old, there was a young guy called Weemack from Wester Hills. They got stabbed to death. Even at that age. How old were you when you became a skinhead and what did that entail? I was about 15, 14, 15, 15 year old, I think. Is that like the punk rock era? No, it was like madness. Madness. Ska, things like that, yeah. And this time I went to an, I went to another school and um, called Tyne Castle. But I didn't last very long there. You know, I had serious uh, rebellion problems and 
constantly fighting and, and things like that. And when I went back there as well, I, was, I could remember two people that used to bully me at my primary school. You know, and I thought I was that sort of wicked in my own mind at the time. I had this in my head when I went back there. And uh, again, just really revengeful person, really, really dark, dark-hearted, um, getting darker-hearted but by, by the that age. You know, I sort of lost myself. I think when my grand died, I think that my heart shattered. I was like, I was, I felt dead at that age, you know. I was like, I actually said... I actually vowed and swore. I said, you know what? I said, I will never love anyone again. So that was that was me going on this cycle um, from a very young age. Did you hunt those people down who'd bullied you? <sighs> I can remember one of them was in a, we went to a, there was nightclub set. I was a bit, I think 15 year old. And I, I think I, I, I fractured one guy's skull. Yeah, I think so. How did you do that? I stuck the head on him. Just headbutt? A few headbutts. Mm. I regret it now. I regret everything I've done to anybody that, uh, in regards to violence um, now in my life. Were you involved in drugs at that age? No. So what? I was involved in, I, I used to get them. I was getting, like I can remember like when I was in my mum's house, I mean, some, sometimes there used to be a lot of some criminals who used to come to the house and that, and they used to hide some drugs, and I would just skim them off the top. So they used to fill the, fill the um, fridge up. People like Jimmy Boyle was in the house, and all different kind of characters who would be, you know, they'd be filling my head with um, nonsense, really. You know, if someone hits you, hit them 20, 30 times, it's harder, and do this and do that. You know, I was, I was quite... Um, off key, really. I can remember. I remember. I remember. I burnt down my mum's school because I, I heard my mum talking about something that's going. It was just a school called Murrayburn up the road, and I sat in the skylight with petrol bombs, dropping them in, looking at the fire. I could have fell in there. I was watching the flames coming up. It was just completely um, not right, really. Did you say Jamie Boyle a minute ago? Jimmy Boyle. Yeah, my mum. My mum taught him to drive. Yeah. John just explains people watching who he is. Jimmy Boyle was a. Uh, Glaswegian gangster who um, killed, killed, he's known for a knife crime. I think he killed a few people in Glasgow and involved in he heavy underworld crime. We've had a few Glasgow gangsters on. Did you have any dealings with Arthur Thompson, was it? No. Arthur Thompson. And um, what then led you to get into trouble with the police next? Well, what happened? Uh, I think I got charged with a couple of times a serious assault and um, by this time I was the, me and my mum were back together I was about 16, 17 um, we lived down in Me the, the Meadow Bank area and um, I was just doing the training and it just came over me I thought I'd try I was walking up Lothian Road one day and I seen the Royal Marine recruitment and I went in and uh, I tried to join how did that work out? Well, the first time when I went in, I was very fit, so I passed. The, I was very fit for my age, so I passed the medical, and they said, "Right, you can go do the what's called the potential recruits course, where you go down to Limston and they um, just basically fire everything they can at you for three days and try break you kind of thing and running around and rolling around in mud and whatever it is, you know, and shouting at you and 
past the physical, but when I went to see the wrench, he says, why do you want to join the Roman commandos? Well, I says, because I want to kill people. That was me. She, she, wrote, she wrote me off. She wrote me off completely. She said, she says, no, but wrong attitude, immature, you know, out the door. So I wasn't giving up. They said, reapply. I reapplied. Went down, passed the PRC. And uh, then I, I was into the Royal Marines. 17, 18 years old. I was very young. At 17, you were in the Royal Marines. Mm. I was just 17 and a half, 17. Where were you like based? Down in Limston. And what did, did you like suit that kind of regimented lifestyle? At the beginning, it was fantastic because I was, you know, I was fit and I was like a, I was probably a bit of a show off because my fitness level was above most people's at that age, you know, even in there and I'd done boxing, I'd done martial arts and I used to, be, we used to do the boxing and enter troop boxing and I used to be showing off and, you know, coming first and, you know, when you're in somewhere like that, you don't want to come first. You want to come middle all the time. You don't want to come last. You don't want to come first. You want to come in the middle. But I was enjoying it. I enjoyed the first the first few months and then um, my grandfather, my great-grandfather died and um, I spoke to my mother on the phone and um she says, oh, don't bother coming up for the funeral. I went, no, I'm coming up, I'm coming up. I think I really wanted a break as well, really, you know. Um, so what happened, they said to me, they said, oh, well, if you if you leave here, you know you're going to get back trooped and I'd have to do all that again. And I was like, I was young, naive, you know, so I'm like, really? So I went, I went up before that, they're not going to back troop me. And I came back and they, uh, pardon me, they put me in another they back trooped me into a troop three months back because I was in troop 531 and um, when they got me in there my reception was not too good the first time it was a sergeant coming in it was like I had a really good training team on the first one but the second training team were, were, were they were absolutely horrendous um, bullies you know and they took a instantaneous dislike to me. I don't know if it was because of the boxing I did or whatever it was. But I seen like young men, young men that were there that were downstairs in the training area. Like they just get them, they get them down, pull their hair down, punch them in the mouth, and kick the body all over. They just gave them kick-ins. And I mean, that kind of trait. That's that's not, in my opinion, not how you train to be a soldier. Do you know what I mean by by extreme bullying? And there was extreme bullying in there. And I was the focus of the attention. He said, he said to me, he said, you're going to leave. And he was on me every minute for months, every day, every hour. He was on me, on me, on me. And uh, every time he was coming in the morning, he would like um, empty my locker and boot my stuff and boot my bed up in there. And he called me, he gave me a name, Frisp, which is a swear word. Repulsive, ignorant Scottish pig. Got the troop to start calling me that. Mm. Um, and then I was on exercise one day. And I was on exercise and I twisted my ankle a bit. And they said, got a present for you. And what they did is they tied a house brick around my neck for two more days. They were making me jump in, in like bushes and with thorns in them. Um you know, they, they, they would be like a, a tree that would be like two miles. You go and 
everybody go and get a leaf off that tree and come back now. So you're all stomping over there. You get a leaf, and even if you were only last, even if I was the last, I would have to do it again. Mm. So it was like a severe beasting, you know. And then I'd get back to the get back to and, he, and, and you know you get for me in the ground kicking me and whatever. And they had a thing called the tank where at Limston they have a thing called the tank, and it's like where you would, it sort of goes over like the Tarzan assault course at Limston, and it would freeze up in the winter. And suddenly, like, I'd be, at, like, at the range or something. They say, you're going in the tank. Go and get up to the tank, break the water, jump in the tank. And you get to jump in the tank until they said you get out of that tank. So it was quite it was quite a hardening um, experience. So what happened was I was playing, I, I, dis I dislocated my shoulder a little bit. Well, a big bit, actually. It was a reoccurring thing through my life that I ended up getting an operation for in my 20s. How did you dislocate it? It was something absolutely silly, really. I think I was actually, I, I think I was actually playing rugby up there in in the Marines for another troop or something, and I just hit it out of place. And um, they put me in Dieppe troop, where you where if you're sick, you would go into that troop. And um, we used to sneak out. We used to go into the town. Um, we used to go into Exeter. And, the, and you know what it's like, the women loved the Marines, you know. And um, I got this thing where I started to get out there and I had a girlfriend that used to, she used to love going to graveyards for some reason, I don't know why. But she used to like go to graveyards and have sex and things. It's odd, but that's where she wanted me to go or I wanted to go or something like that. And I got the little uh, habit of what I did was, you're meant to hard hand your card in um, when you go out. But you could sort of swerve it a little bit. So you'd have to, if you handed your card in, you're maybe back at 12. And uh, I got this thing where I managed to do this sort of thing where I didn't have to, I never handed the card in, but I would come back at two or three in the morning. I thought, I'm going to um, just get over the fence. So what I did the first time, I actually got in there, the first time I'd done it, I used to go through the woods at night after the night out on the piss. And um, I went over the fence. First time I got away with it. Second time, down, 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 down. Um, name and number, name and number. And I'll tell you exactly when it was. I was the, the time scale I was there was when Prince Andrew was there. <sighs> That's when I was there, yeah. So that happened. And I had an inspection in the morning. And I went to... Was Prince Andrew chasing underage girls up there? And, and, sorry, it was the, Prince Edward, sorry. Oh, Edward. It was okay. Prince Edward that was there, yeah. Um... I didn't really, they, they, they had them under a lot of suits, even there. But I tell you, you never got it easy. They wouldn't let them, they would, you know, you would have thought, no, no, he, he actually got it tougher. Um, the Marines weren't having that, really. They weren't having that. Quite a, a hard bunch, you know. Difficult to get in, very difficult to get in, and uh, the training is quite intense. So um, one night, I sneaked in, down, 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 and then I'll end up back at the... Um, back in my room and basically what happens is the two of the guys who were also in the troop where was getting beasted in they were there and they took the springs out my bed and they changed the locker on my lock and I tried to open it and I couldn't open it then I went I was half drunk I laid on the bed and fell through my bed so I'm raging in the I was raging in the morning and I went up to the guard room and got bolt cutters for so obviously I can't do my inspection 
So I went back and um, they're laughing at me. The guys that done it, they were, but I'd been getting bullied for near on three months with this mob, you know, and uh, I snapped and uh, I attacked them both with the boat cars, doing a lot of damage. And the, the guy who was uh, in charge of the EP, he was a special boat squad and he came in, he went mental. He went absolutely crazy, crazy at me for what I did really. And um, it was pent up anger, you know, I was angry for, for, for what had been going on for the, you know, any of it, I think everybody's got a breaking point, really. And um, they ended up getting me out of there very quickly, out of the core. They spoke to me, they said, listen, he says, you're going to have to leave here. We're going to give you an exemplary record, but you're going to have to go. So from there, I went over to Spain. We had another guy who just about to finish his course, just about to do his commando tests and all that, done them all individually. And he says, I'm leaving, I'm leaving anyway. He said, I only came in to see if I could do, do this and complete it. So I left, I went over, over to Spain with him and um, we went to Ibiza. Two young guys and we ended up having a fight in the room one day. We had a fight in the room, I was bringing girls back to the room and he wasn't happy about it. And there was another couple of guys from London and so like we befriended each other and then one day he came in, he wanted in the room and he came in the room and attacked me. One day in the in the... When I was in the in, in the room, I think he was jealous because I was with some girl or something. Or and then um, he got me down and he started petting me on the bed, and I ended up hitting him, and I got I ended up beating him, and I got up and he had a an uh you know one of the the air like the the fire extinguishers. I had one of them, and I turned it on like that, and I never knew I could just I've tried to spray it at the time, and I didn't know when you turned it on it completely. And utterly just stayed on. And the place was covered in uh, like white foam, you know, and uh, that was nearly the end of that holiday, I'll tell you. And then I was back to back to Edinburgh. Where did you land in Edinburgh? I landed back at my mother's, got involved with crime, um, organised crime, through people that my mum would have known in the past and that, that were into my life then and started getting involved in um, I was bringing cocaine up from London to Edinburgh, cocaine and hash for a, for a number of months should I say, I was getting paid So you're, you're driving it? No, I was getting trains or I was getting off at the trains, I was getting paid for whatever I brought up and suddenly I was making a lot of money How much you get paid for a load? Thinking back now, I can't mind. It was probably about, it was probably a thousand pound. Or in those days, it would have seemed a lot of money. You know, it was thousand pound or fifteen hundred pound. And when I was down there, I was enjoying the nightlife. I would be going to like the Hippodrome and all that in those days, and the Stringfellows. You know what it was like then. People used used to love showing off. It was all about this and all about that, really. Um, so I done that, and I started selling a bit of the drugs that I had and things like that and then one day I came up on the train and uh, I was actually started taking the stuff so I was a bit stoned on the train I can remember I was listening to Simon Garfunkel I had a cowboy hat on um, jeans and cowboy boots and I got off the train and I got up the stairs and uh, t unbelievably silly the guy who was actually doing the drugs at the time 
collapsed up. Someone was just picked me up. He picked me up. We drove up the road and the uh, drug squad on the car. Boom, they chased us, slammed the car and got me out the car and uh, took me to the police station. And uh, yeah, first adult offence gave me three and a half years. How did it feel on your sentencing day? I didn't bother. You didn't? No, I, was, I didn't care at the time. Oh, you wasn't caring? Didn't bother about anything. I was, uh, didn't care. In those days, I didn't, I didn't really have any feelings. So when I went to the prison, I sort of, I enjoyed it really at the time. Did you know a lot of people in there? No, but when I got in there, I got to know a lot of people. And were you in like a dorm or a cell? I can remember the very first time I was put in prison, I was put in the, the we are a mentally ill guy. And um, he was obviously a tramp. He had long hair. He's the the cell was covered in uh, urine, mm. and he was getting this his own uh, pee pot at the time and doing that with his beard. Mm. And I thought, what is going on here? And uh, someone came to the spiral and said, uh, "What's going on in there?" He said, "We're going to get you out of there." And they said, "Just tell the," I think they called him Screws, don't they? Um, prison officer. He said, "Just tell the prison officer that if you don't get out of that cell." Um, you'll be responsible for what happens to the guy in there. So that was it, and they took me up the cell, thank God. And who was your next cellmate after that? I went up stairs, and uh, I don't really remember the names. And Yeah, we'll keep names out, but that. just a general, like, what happened next? Well, I was just getting involved with a lot of Hibs boys and that, but a few in there. Um, Terry, Terry Riley, John Crombie, people who were doing the, C, the CCS at the time, older, you know, they were sort of like, at that time, just starting off, Justin Scott at the time was there, and a few other really older guys were there, and it was just really um, simple, wasn't it, really, a little bit of violence in jail, and just the usual thing, I was in a couple of riots in there. Riots? Yeah. What were the riots over? Well, I think one time they, they allowed a sex offender into the, um, into the dining area, and, you know, that was one time, and then there was another time, and the, you know, they kicked off the whole hall with all the metal trays all over the place, and they get the, they get the prison officers down, and they'll come up, and they're all like that. And What happened to the sex offender? It was called, the, I think he got um, badly hit. Badly hit. He got badly injured, yeah. So were you having to put in work for some of the more serious characters in there? Um... My co-accused, who was at the time, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was, it didn't really bother me really, you know, I was there and then the the, the three and a half months went by and then I ended up, um, they wanted me to plead guilty, they wanted me to plead, they wanted me to say if he was, to say that he done, that he was involved and they would have let me off with the charges if I said he was involved, but I wasn't going to do that, so. I think that's why the judge gave me the, the, the stiffer sentence for what it was. It was, it was an MC Coke, and uh, they were wanting him badly, but um, they let him off sort of thing, and he, they were a bit raging, and uh, I went on to do my three and a half years. So you've got respect, you've not cooperated, you're unemotional, you're fitting in in the environment, making friends. What Was there any moments in the where you were really low thinking like you know maybe suicidal or anything like that no never never 
I just trained. I was when I went to Pullman at first, we were behind the door, I think, 23 hours a day. There was a lot of young people killing themselves at that time and that, but, um, you know, I was near that mindset. I thought, after the Marines, this is easy, you know. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I've been sleeping in, training with the guys, probably some of the hardest people in the world, really, and uh, going in jail was a bit of a, I thought it was, yeah. Bit of a letdown. <laughs> I don't know if it was that, but I just put on me it really I just thought it was alright I got my food was able to do my training um, what training were you doing weight training so you had access to weights mm -hmm. so just like a general like squats curls that kind of stuff that's it I don't know but I was also doing like um, a lot of cardio as well so sprints sprints and things like that they had the competition for the fittest person in the jail and uh, I can remember I was doing this competition and the the, the officers didn't like me, really. Because I was getting, like, on my visits, I was getting drugs posted in, like, the tampon box and the thing, and I was doing the drugs. and mm. So they knew I was doing it, but they couldn't catch me doing it, but they, they didn't really like me. They put me in the mechanics. I didn't like being in the mechanics. I hated getting my hands dirty. And uh, it was just a bit like that, really, yeah. And then my two cousins came in and there was gang warfare, we were getting involved and fighting in there and that. And that uh, neighbor, different neighbourhoods? Yeah, it was um, Glasgow and Edinburgh and all that sort of nonsense, really. And uh, I had a few fights and then I was in bed one day. I had a fight with someone who was in the changing rooms and I had them and I had this iron and I was going to do that and thank God I never. And when I was in bed asleep, he ran in the door when I was in my bed and caught me at the side of my face with a... Is that what that is? Yeah, that's what that is, yeah. And he ran out. And then my cousins came in, my cousin Finley Welsh and Jason Smith, they came in the room, they went, what has happened here? And they went along to to get him, and he actually got him, to get him, he was going to, you think he was going to cut his eyes in the, or something like that, and the thing, and he, the guy actually came back to my room to apologise. Did you have to go to medical for that? What happened was he came in the room to apologise and I, I, I grabbed him sort of thing and it went, you know, from the, it was sort of like pods. So, so it went, the fight went into the hall and I was fighting with him and I got put into, so taken to hospital, put, in, put into solitary and uh, they were like, the, the 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 governor was like, you know, we want to know who he done it, didn't he done it? And you know what it's like in prison, you can't say anyone done anything. I just said, return, take me to another jail. And he said, you will do every day of your sentence in this prison. Every day. And he, he got rid of the other guy. And I stayed there and I done my time and I got out. Did you get a lot of stitches in that? I was 17. 70. 17. Oh, 17. Okay. So when you got out then, what kind of a life was waiting for you? I was just completely... All I wanted to do was get... It just made me more... Determined to get into the crime. Was your drug of choice in prison coke? No. Heroin? I didn't really take a lot of drugs when I, when I was in prison. Sometimes I took some um, hash, I think. Yeah. But it, it wasn't such a... So you didn't get out of a big habit? No, I never had any habit, no. Okay. It's just like a recreational thing. Mm. Yeah. I can remember when, when them, like, we all went in dorms one day. There was me and a few guys. We had a dorm and we went in the dormitories. And one day we used to... We unscrewed the lights to 
wire the um, our stereo up and we blew the lights for the whole jail and we had to clean it up. <laughs> and then the, the officers came in the morning. We cleaned it up so well. They, they fought, the, the, the other guys in the next uh, dormitory, they blamed them and they all got carted off, didn't they? <laughs> so, you know, it's just prison. That's what it was like. And uh, I got out there now. Started getting involved in organised crime, drugs, and uh, all the things I shouldn't have really. Transport again? No dealing. So, did you were you like dealing directly, or did you have people working for you? Working for me, I, I end up going a lot of areas in the city. I would get people in certain areas, different parts of the city. You know, got involved in security as well. We clear more security in the. Rapid response unit. I was working with them, I think, for, for a while. Can you give us an example of a rapid response? Well, if someone kicked off in a club, um, we would be the ones that would go up to sort that out, really. And so you just try and defuse the situation. And the guy that was with would normally be telling them, you know, if you didn't stop it, we'll be coming to see you on Monday. So that was really easily defused it, really. So your income is security and drugs. Are you making so much money, you got quite a lavish lifestyle at that point? You could say that, yeah. What were you spending it on? You spend it as quick as soon as you get it, don't you, really? Clothes and acting the big man, buying the champagne in the bars and all that rubbish. Yeah. And what about your relationship? Motorbikes and cars. And Do you have girlfriends? Or? Too many. And then the police are going to catch on to this, I take it, to the drug stuff? No, what happened was I ended up um, getting involved with some, like -minded, some, some like-minded criminals who were, and we ended up um, starting the raves up there. We'd done the house parties. Oh, so what year is that? It must have been 91. Okay, so just after all this stuff, yeah. 91, 92. Yeah. So the scene was blowing up, was it, up there? We started it up, yeah, and, uh, you know, it was a typical thing, arguing over what it was, and then the, then it was ended up in turmoil and wars, and, uh, yeah, things like that. Did you get into ecstasy distribution? Yeah, I was involved with it, yeah. So you're sourcing them out of Holland? No, I was getting them. I was getting them from. I think it was Liverpool. Oh, Liverpool! Yeah, that's quite a hub, isn't it, for that activity? Mm. Yeah. Again, I'm not proud of it. I'm. No, no, of course, and we're going to get to the redemption. What was your next big trouble spot? Well, when we had a, a uh, there was a, a sort of break with the rave company. Like there was two, four partners, and uh, I got set up to to stab someone by the name of Terry Riley. I mean, I stabbed him. It was like he was, he was, you know, he was a bit of a nut, a nut himself. He'd killed people and, you know, I got sort of set up to do that. I stabbed him in a club. And What uh, do you mean by that, set up to do it? I was set up to do it. It was like uh, somebody said that he was looking for maybe a shotgun and this mm. and that and I phoned him up and I was like, what is this going on? And he was like, he said, there's three people taking over Scotland and this and that. And he was just like, just these generally babies on the phone, and then I was doing the security in a nightclub one night, and I stabbed him, unfortunately. And did he survive? Yeah. He sat down in the seat and said, I'm going to kill you. He was stabbed about seven times. 
He was very tough, yeah. So you got nicked for that? No, never even got nicked. He never even grasped me up. What the hell? Did he come back at you? What he used to do, he used to actually live across the road from my mother's. Good grief. He used to live across from my mother's and he used to stare at the window down at my house. So the other guys for the, the wave company, there was contracts on me and all that sort of stuff. And uh, after that, they tried to shoot me at my mum's door. So just set the scene for that a bit. You come out of this house and he's positioned somewhere. No, it's like the, the people, He this was after I'd done that. They, they'd set someone up, pay someone to shoot me at my mother's door. Oh, but you didn't actually get shot I never shot got at. shot, no. I see. They were doing like... My mum caught it at the window. Yeah. So that happened. So there was like... So moving on for that, you know, I sort of like spoke to him and he sort of posited, I know it was the you that done it. And uh, I ended up like... We went up to... My, my two cousins got murdered in Edinburgh. So this was murder. And uh, we went up to the graves and we got drunk and said... So you said a minute ago, you're not proud of it. And we've got a lot, a lot of young people watching these videos... You've described how you got into the drug scene, you had all this money, birds, lifestyle, but now, all of a sudden, you've stabbed someone, you've got family members who are dead, you've got a guy trying to shoot you at your mother's house. Yeah. So what do you say to young people watching this who think it's glamorous to get into drugs? I'd say it's not glamorous whatsoever, and I'd say, you know, it takes a, you know, it might be the company that you might be in, you might think they're good for you and you feel you feel part of that company, but um, I would get out of it very quickly if I was you because it's, it's only going to re- lead to a road to extreme ruin and uh, life's drugs are bad, they're dangerous, they're evil, they ruin lives, they ruin minds and they ruin people and they ruin families as well. I know a lot of people that have OD'd or you know, caught HIV through drug abuse in Edinburgh countless people that were in that, you know, so it's not a good thing and crime is not a good thing either to be involved in. It will always end up in tears in the end. So there's a warfare going on in your life at that point. You Are you taking measures now to avoid getting attacked and Well, I'm paranoid, but I'm still, I'm still doing the security in this club one night and uh, someone said someone wanted to speak to you at the door. And I went to the door and there was a bit, the door shut on me. They shut the door on me. And there was seven, eight people outside the door with knuckle dusters, baseball bats. I had a knife on my back. You know. I ran up the road. It was in video. It was on the, on the CCTV. So I ran up the road and uh, I turned round. And when I turned round, the guy was so close to me. So I was like that. And I turned round and it went right in his heart. You had a knife? I had a knife, yeah. It went right in his heart. They got me down and they were weighing into maybe baseball bats and knuckle dusters and I, I was curled up on the floor and I can remember I looked up and I, there was a police car just came right around the corner just at that time so I get arrested they get arrested I get put in jail they get put in jail now if you stick someone in the heart usually that's fatal what he, happened with that person he survived he survived right in the wall he's pierced the wall his heart and he survived oh bloody hell it was a miracle it's a miracle that the cop was there to save your life. Well, there's been a few things that's been... Uh, I've been very blessed in my life and I didn't even know it. Did you then get charged with something for this? Attempted murder. Attempted murder. But during this time as well, I'd been caught with hash. 
and I'd been caught with someone else or something like that. There's a array of things I've ended up in, in, in there for that. First it was the hash and then that happened. Then I find myself in prison and they uh, put me into solitary. This Barlini? Stockton. And what was solitary there like? It was just like solitary. You were in there. I, I was in there. I was next door to the Lockerbie Bomber. The Lockerbie Bomber? Yeah. Just, I, sort of, just, I sort of kicked off when I was in there. And when I was in there, I was sort of like, yeah, it was a strange time in my life, really. And uh, I wasn't getting bail. I, I'd applied for high court bail twice. And a girlfriend I'd had, a girlfriend from school by the name of Janet, wrote me a letter. And, um, She's talking about this guy, Jesus. I was like, no way. But I tell you, when you're in solitary confinement for a bit of time, it gives you a time to reflect on your life. And when you're very low. And I thought, you know, I thought, I'm going to pray. So I prayed that day. I prayed that very morning for Jesus coming to my life and uh, I didn't know much about it or anything like that and uh, the prison door opened two hours later they said you got bail so I just I was like really I've got bail so I got out of the prison phoned your lawyer I was thinking what have I got caught for now phoned up the lawyer he said it's a miracle he said they've dropped the charges for the hash illegal technicality of the car so I'm out, and I end up going to um, church, which was a very funny thing, really, you know, after everything that went on and the environment and this and that, and I was like, suddenly from there to going to church, and I can remember I was thinking, like, running away and running off and everything like that, and the pastor shouted, he said, you boy, he says, you can run anywhere. But you will never run from God. So it was that, you know. I think that. I think I think we missed an important factor about all this stuff was before I was in prison. You know, before I was in prison, I was. So he had a friend called Ando, and his mother his mother um, ran the brothels in Edinburgh. A lot of the brothels and them. Um, I was thinking about like um, you know, I was had this rage in me about this person and all that, you know, and um, he says my mum, he said that my mum would like to speak to you. I mean, he used to be like play around with the girls in the snooker halls or whatever, but you know, whatever they were doing, you know, at the time. And um, I went to this house and it was a satanic coven. This was before I went into prison, by the way. Could you describe what a satanic coven looks like? It was just like a normal house near Gogelburn Mental Asylum. So I went in there. Went in and there was a table with 13 numbered chairs around it. I just sat in a little waiting area. I, mean, I can remember it was the oddest day of my life. And when I went in, I was sort of said, like, you know, like, she said, you need someone to die. And I said, yeah. And she says, um, and I thought she was going to ask me to do something violent. And it would have got me out of the way for that crime, really. 
And when she says, "What do you what do you want?" Expecting to say, and she says, "We want the soul of your first unborn child." I was taken back. I didn't even I didn't even have a child. I didn't even have a kid at that time. And I, you know, I left, and I was like, I was left, and even the the guy the next same week, it was strange enough because what he said was, I said, "Oh, I've, I've thought about this thing. Your mum will go back." She says, no, you're not for us, you're claimed by someone else. Even then. I want the soul of your first unborn child. Yeah. What was your interpretation of that? <sighs> I'll tell you what, it's the best decision I ever made in my life. She said, you give us the soul of your first unborn child. She said, you will have a kingdom here. A kingdom. Now, I was aware that through um, her son and other people that were in the house one time going back, evil people, you know, I'm talking about people that kill people and things like that. You know, I, I could describe some things. I didn't want to go into it. It's so awful, some of the things they'd done. I wouldn't even go there. I wouldn't even go there. Um, but e evil beyond comprehension, really. Um, some of the things these people had done to people that, that were in that, Group and criminal group, you know. But I think what they what they tend to do is they, whoever would go in, they had a one called the dungeon. And I went in there one day, and it was just bare walls, and it had like blood and things and like shackles in it and things like that. And uh, I think a lot of people used to go in there, probably they used to film film them perhaps in these precarious positions, and um, that's what goes on. They get they get them in compromising positions, Satanists, and what do they have over them? They have power. Like, in in high places as well. Like we saw of Epstein and Prince Andrew. Perhaps. So I want the soul of your unborn child. Does that mean she wants you to physically hand the child over to them? Or does that mean some kind of spell was put on the child? I don't know to this day. Right. Because I've never done it. And what happened to that woman? I've never, ever seen her again. Yeah. Okay, so you're at a point in your life then where you've gone to the Lord, but you're also getting tempted back into the dark side. Yeah, but like it's like... Which way is it going to play out at this point in your life? Well, the thing is, what happened was the pastor spoke to me and he said, you see this through. He said, you see this through. He said, you've got to see this through. He says, God's with you. And I went up for the attempted murder charge and they found me not guilty by accident because they said they'd they seen the video that I was trapped outside, ran up the road. Seven against one. Yep, and they said it was a fox in the hair. That's the way he described it. There's the fox, there's the hair. Knox is the fox. You know, so running up and uh, that's what happened. And then I faced that trial and I got off and then there was one where my mum's door got bashed down for drugs before you go there the yeah. day you got off and you heard that decision how did you feel i felt like a weight had dropped off my neck i can remember there was two young men that were in there who just got found guilty of murder and they says what to do and i says pray pray and then i had another trial for Someone phoned up the police and told my mum, uh, said that my mum's house was full of drugs and the police came at six one morning with hammers 
and mallet hammers and started bashing the door and I thought it was a hit. I've stood behind the door and the, the, the hammers coming through both sides. My mum phoned the police and it was recorded on, on the on the, the recording machine. So basically I was behind the door and I tried to get me the knife. She gave me the knife and I tried to stab him in the hand. And um, yeah, I got away with that as well. There's nothing... But I, I genuinely never knew it was police anyway. If you're facing a huge sentence that could possibly be a life sentence, the uncertainty just eats away at you constantly, doesn't it? And then you go to your sentencing hearing and then to be, to get off on that case, I can't imagine you must have just been just felt, you know, like wow. The weight the weight did drop off. I continued going to church, um, but it didn't take me really long to fall away. And um, what was the temptation that caused you to fall away? People around me, peer group coming back into my back into my life. Um, you can soon forget these things when they happen, you know. So basically I started doing the raves again with another, joined up with a company called Amnesia House and we'd done some raves Oh, you had some there flyers from them. I started getting into drugs, I started getting into drugs again. I started going to Jamaica a lot. Jamaica? Was, yeah, I was going over Jamaica and bringing drugs back for Jamaica, yeah. Was it easy to just go in and out? Then it was, yeah. Where did you stash the drugs? People, we sold them in uh, fingerless rubber gloves, uh, surgeon's gloves. <laughs> so you put it in a, like eight bag tie it up and they'd put a fingerless cut thing off the finger put the drugs in there tie it with dental floss turn it around tie it with dental floss turn it around and they used to swallow it yeah swallow it wow yeah how many of those missions did you go on I spent a lot of time over there I used to go over I used to feel that when I was over there I was getting a bit of a sort of respite you know and at this time I'd met the, the mother of my children Amanda so you were sort of in Edinburgh, I know this was going on and still living with all these sorts of things happening, whatever. I thought, you know what, I've got to get over and I ended up like um, obtaining a lot of money quickly and going to Spain. How did you obtain the money? I don't know, I ripped people off. Drug dealers? People that I normally supplied, yeah. So you were taxing? No, I would supply them, then I reversed it and I got them to give me them. So there's a long story, there was people meant to turn up in Jamaica for drugs and they bottled it and... Someone brought it back that I knew that was quite close to me and they nearly died. And I was like, no. Then I got some money, got that money. I went to Spain. I lived in Spain. And you said you had a girlfriend at this stage? And a son, yeah. I had a boy that came on the scene, yeah. And where was she living? She was living with me. So both of you guys go to Spain? We went to Spain. I thought, you know what? I can't really live this lifestyle with the boys, with the boy in the house, really. And I ended up moving over to Spain. But that didn't get much better either when I went to Spain. It was like um, just got completely into what I was exactly before, but worse, really. I took, like, ecstasies over and I had this great idea to go over there and do this, but I ended up just getting involved in violence and a whole lot of horrible other stuff. And I can remember I thought, you know what, I went to the toilet and there was blood in my blood in the toilet and I says, get your bags, we're leaving. It was a bit... I think it was about 18 months later, I said, pack up, we're going, I bought a Mercedes camper van, I never had a driving licence. And we drove back and ended up on the south coast and lived there. You're saying there's blood in your piss? No, I'm a... In your stool? Yeah. I was taking so much drugs, <sighs> like constantly on ecstasy every day, drink. Yeah. 
So where did you go next? We ended up in the south coast. We went to a place called Despawn, where I got a job for a little while. I actually landed there, and I think the, within two weeks he'd gone. I mean, throughout all that time in Edinburgh, I ended up I ended up in Eastbourne, and I was walking by a taxi driver, and there was three taxi drivers beating one guy, and I said, "Stop! What are you doing?" I said, "Stop it!" He cracked me right in the jaw, and I ended up fighting the guy at the taxi driver, and I punched him, and I chipped his eye. And uh, I was there was another couple of guys there, and I ended up in the court for GBH. And I thought I didn't have to go to the to the to the high court, but I thought they hit me. So I thought they've hit me, and now you know they're doing this. So I thought I'll take it to the high court. I took it to the guy who high court, and he hated me. He says you're an ex-marine, you've this experience, and that gave me a never gave me long, but he gave me three and a half months in jail. So I went in there, went to. I think it was um, Lewis then Wandsworth they put me in. Wandsworth? Yeah, around the star and all that, yeah, was in there. And um, strangely, really, because when I went in there, you had all the the Jamaicans or the black guys on one end and the white guys. And I, was, I was getting on with quite a lot with the, with the black guys. I was training with them because they knew some of the guys that I'd known, known in Jamaica. <laughs> They were quite surprised, really. <laughs> I think that that amount of time in Jamaica had a big effect on my character as well. You know, had that that ragamuffin, hard man. You know, we take us back to England in the car. We do this and that, and it really affected me as a person. You know, my, my character, who I was that time in Jamaica. Other than running drugs in Jamaica, what did you do in Jamaica socially? <sighs> what do you ever do in Jamaica socially? How, did you, how were you living? Like what? What? What was your lifestyle? My lifestyle was, you know, it was what it shouldn't be really a lot of drugs, a lot of, you know, women and... It's just non-stop. Yeah. So you get out of Wandsworth. You're going to clean your act up this time? I get out of Wandsworth and um, I end up getting a job for a, for a small amount of time. And then I think I was doing removals for a little while, and then I met a guy that, that introduced me to someone who was um, in Bournemouth. I was I was hell bent on revenge at the time from the, my mate getting stabbed, and I couldn't really get out of my head and that. And you know, I had all this stuff in my past and this anger and this bitterness and the hatred, and it was still it was there. You know, it had never sort of left me, sort of thing. And uh, I went looking for a gun, and the guy says to me, he says, "Listen," he says. I'm not going to give you, sell you a gun. He says, but what I'm going to do, he says, you're all right, you are, he says. I can tell you're an all right lad. He says, I'm not going to give you a, a firearm, he says, but what I will do is I'm going to give you a job. He says, I'm going to give you £5,000 worth of clothing, drink, and tobacco. He says, I'll never, he said, I never touch drugs. He says, it's for idiots, you know, do, 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 and there. Uh, he said, I'm going to give you £5,000 credit. He said, it's up to you. He said, you can run away and do what you want to do. Or you can make a hundred grand with me this year, 50 or hundred grand. He said, the choice is yours. He trusted me. I worked with him for a few years. He was all right, yeah. I had a, got into the golf. Quite a tamer, you know. That, that time was probably, it was a good period for a number of years. There wasn't any activities with any women or I was working hard I, I used to drop the clothes off in all different areas and 
just really hit the golf course. I was making three or four grand a week, I think, at the time. And you still with your missus? I'm with my missus, yeah, and we're getting on all right. The, the child's there, and I've cleaned up my act. And uh, I can remember one day, a guy tapped the Christmas time, and there was a guy called Don Hazeman that I met in Spain. This was years later. And I've got a tap at my door. He's at my door. He says, I want to recruit you. He said, I've got a French foreign legionnaire. He says, I've got two or three hundred keys coming off a boat from Morocco. I want you to come down. We're going to take off. And I was like, it was it was Christmas Eve. I was a bit shocked he was there. I was like, listen, I says, it's not happening now. I'm not doing that anymore. You know, it's it's over. I've got my kids in here. And, and he's came in the house. And this guy, he was a nutter, like, you know. And uh, my brother-in-law was there. And he said the wrong things. What are you saying, guy? And that, and he started. I said, leave him. You know, but some people are out of control and wild, and you know. So I done that for a number of years. So I was doing the clothes for a number of years, and then I thought, Do you know what? I think I yearned excitement or something like that. I ended up saying I'm going to do this myself. I was still getting the clothes, but I thought I'll start going to do some smuggling, and I started going to like Kenya, Tenerife. Thailand and I was going to these places and I was buying cigarettes with like a gang we'd fill up the cases pre-9-11 you know um, all the fiascos over there and things like that you know you can imagine I've done that for a number of years um, and basically what happened was I can remember I was in Africa and what we used to do we used to get like clothes and we used to take them to the orphanage I think it maybe made us feel good or something like that, I don't know. But we used to take the clothes to the orphanage. So we had empty um, cases to come back to put the cigarettes in. We used to buy them for like £2 and sell them. A gang of six years. One of the most crazier things that happened to me was like I was... Um, I was in a car one day. And the guy had the crucifix in the car. And I says, I'm just a bit drunk. I says, can I have that? I mean, no, man. That's for me, safety and all this and whatever it is, isn't it? I said, give me it. I said, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. I said, no. And I was saying, let me drive your cab, let me drive your cab. He's like, no, no. I've ended up giving him anything to drive that cab. So I got in that, ta I, I was driving it along the Mombasa Road. I drove it along the road. Suddenly, there was just, the, the Mombasa Bridge River was there and there was a bus in front of me. I'm driving, the brakes have failed. Mm. There's an articulated concrete lorry around there. I thought, what am I going to do? It's in the back of that. It's down the river. Or I can get round. I thought, I'll get round. Put the foot down. That hit mm. me head on, head on. Hit me head on. Now, I'm like this in the car. It's crushed. The car's crushed. The steering wheel's up here. I can hardly get out of the car. I could I could move my legs, I could move my toes. Go out the other side of the car and I'm limping a little bit. There was a razor cut from the bottom of my leg right up to here. Not a mark on my leg. I'm like, where am I, where am I? And this, this woman was next to the road and she says, uh, come back. She said, I have a place for you to rest. I went back and I, it was actually a, it was actually a um, home for, for ex-prostitutes a ministry for girls who'd been in prostitution that the, the, the Christian faith had helped. And I slept on that bed and I woke up in the morning and then the guy banged the door, bu, 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 buana, buana. I said, you must see this car. I said, what? He said, you are blessed, miracle from God. 
you should be dead. He says, come and look at this car. I went and I look at that car and I'll tell you that crucifix was on that seat. Would you believe it? Yeah, true story. Wow. So I carry on. I'm doing these runs and I'm Jack the Lad and all that. I come back and one time I think I'm just feeling too confident. Too many cases. Usually you go middle. I've got the stuff and I've tried to zoom right through. They've stopped me. Um, the rest of the gang got through. They've stopped me at Heathrow. They've opened up the cases. All the cigarettes have sprang out. And they've locked, they've um, chained me up. They charged me. A few months later, I end up um, getting time. I get sent to, it was six and a half months, I think, something like that. But it was, it was near two, it was, I thought for cigarettes. But it was the VAT or the tax or something like that. And uh, I end up in the, I ended up in the, um, Lewis and directly I was put into the scrubs from the scrubs they took me to Belmarsh put me in the terrorist unit it was brutal is that because of all your um, accumulated crimes over the years they classified you as a higher ranking I don't know I person so, possibly yeah and what was what was that unit like then it was brutal in what way it was different it was different from wherever I'd be, wherever I'd been, ever. It was really like you know I was I was in a in a in a bunk with someone upstairs. Said, How long are you doing it? Twenty seven years. I'm down there doing six and a half months. Then I got moved into a single cell. Um, my, my partner at the time was Amanda. She was coming up to see me. She had to get her hands scanned. The dogs were all over her and. You know, I was like, what am I doing here? So what have I done? I prayed again. I says, this time, Lord, I said, I will serve you. I says, if I can get out here. And, you know, we all want something, don't we? But it's, you're going to find later on, it's not what you want, it's what you're going to do. I prayed. I thought, this life's over for me. I cannot, I've got children, I can't continue with this lifestyle. So I got out of there and I got a job doing removals with my brother-in-law's company, getting £65 a day, but I had a lot of money. So he's gave me a job, his partner tried to rip him off, and then I went and seen his partner, I said, why, why are you doing that, you know, do, 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 and then he went and I ended up doing the removals. And I was doing the removals for a company called Michael Garrison's in London which was a big, um, it, it was it was strange really, because I, I, I never really knew what I was doing, and suddenly I ended up a partner of this company, and it's all export packing for export and things like that. He didn't want to work with me after a few weeks, I got a bit of the hump with him. But you know, I went away, I think I went away somewhere, I was, he hurt his ankle and I went away and uh, we broke up anyway, the partnership broke up and I went on my own. And then I ended up doing my own cruising teams and packing vans and things like that. And I went and I thought, I can do this. Hmm. I thought, I can really do this. I can do a company like this. So I worked for years in the removals and I, I, I built that up to, I think I, I had about 13 vans going at, at one stage. 
life was reasonably normal, you know, as normal as it could have been. I was working hard. I was actually turned, I was going to church, I was anti-drugs sort of at the time. It went to, I didn't like that, you know. Um, yeah, so it, it went really well. And then he was getting the other directors in this and that. And, you know, I, made, I built the company up really well and then I bust it. You know, just pure greed, really. Greed and like selfishness. I'm in and out. I'm, you know, I'm no, I'm not totally there. Do you get me? When I'm needing God, I'm at the church. So when I'm like this, it was not a big deal in my life, you know. Um, it should have been, let me tell you. So I ended up, I've got this company I built up called Global Moving Systems, working hard. Start over a few years, starts very well, up to sometimes at the best weeks, £20,000. I am going to church at this time. Things are going well. New house, new this. This time I've got two or three children, on two or three children. And um, then the Albanians came into the country. And I, I met a few of them up the town and there. Uh, I thought, these guys, they wanted to give them a job. I thought, I'm going to give them a job. They were all right, but the problem is they came in, but they came in with a, they worked hard, but they brought in with them a attitude. When the Albanians landed here, it was very similar to the, um, to the, to the Italians in America, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? It was similar, similar to that, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, so um, I've got this big company. And then I'm going pretty straight at the time with my wife and things. Well, she was she was my wife then, but Amanda. And um, yeah, so everything's going right, making a lot of money. One one night I hadn't been out. I'd been playing it straight for years and working, but overworking hard. You know, I sort of I don't know if I used to be an adrenaline junkie or whatever you may call it. You know, um, Got the Albanians working for me, making a lot of money. Um, then I started falling away, didn't I? Mm. The lifestyle started getting into the lifestyle. Me and my wife went up London, a group girl from Amanda, we went up London, and there was a socialite girl. We went to that house, and she threw her knickers at me. I put them in my pocket or something like that, and then I ended up having an affair with her. Mm. She's got a strong, wealthy family in London, yeah. And, um, yeah. And then from there, you know, I started to start living the double life kind of thing. I think it was a habit I took with me my whole life, really. You know, in a, in a kind of way, I think when you're sort of used to, you know, like when I lived in Edinburgh, I'd have boat holes I would go to to stay. But I wouldn't be in the same place m m most often, you know. So I have this affair and it ends. And by this time, the company's big. You know, the, the the problem is I've got the, the director, the co-director, I've got the operations manager, I've got all this money and I've got, you know. And then suddenly I, start, I started reading a lot of David Icke's books. <laughs> so I'm reading a lot of David Icke. I started getting into that and um, I started looking at sort of Christianity and I thought, I looked at the Queen, I looked at the Pope and I thought, no way, I was like, I read his books about this and that, and I used to check up these things about Freemasons, and I was like, well, this isn't good. I thought, this guy's right. There's th there were certain things that logged you into a whole lot of things. Um, so 
me and my family, we were like, uh, yeah, we were, we were all right at the time. I'm, I'm, re I'm reading up these books. At the time, I'm coming away from Christianity totally, and I'm getting into Buddhism and started looking into it and things like that. And we go on a lot of holidays. We we, we travelled a lot, you know. We we went we we went abroad maybe three, four, five times a year on holidays. We had a lot of money. Went on a lot of safaris with the kids and things like that. I felt it was the only time I had a bit of a, you know, yeah, really. Um, so I'm either working too hard or no hard enough, you know, for years getting up maybe four in the morning, getting home at 11 at night, takes it, you know, she's spring loaded. It's no, there's no balance there, you know? Yeah, so um, I had an affair. I ended up like... Um, the order, the order is a confusing part. I've, I've I've been reading these David Icke books and getting into it and things like this. And it, during that time as well, I had one of the Albanians asked me to go to somewhere. It was like a knocking shop, you know. I never went to. I wasn't a great person that went there anyway. I met there and I met this girl who was into witchcraft. I ended up having an affair with. Witchcraft, did you say? Yeah. She used to go to the magic shop and things like that. And, the magic shop and this and that and you know during this time my wife knew she she knew what was going on but she was a bit quiet it was just, it was well over you know we'd been we'd only been speaking for years it was my way or no way it wasn't a proper relationship at all I was selfish arrogant self-centered I thought I was doing my bit by putting the it was like a old Sicilian uh, sort of arrangement you know I did what I want when I want but it's no way to run a, a relationship looking back you know um, we can be proud and arrogant and all that kind of thing. Looking back on it, you know, and selfish, really. You think you're supplying for your kids and going on holidays and it's enough when it's not. What they need is your time and your love, really. Yeah, but um, during the times that I was before and I was working for years, I'd take the kids to football or I'd do something like that. But now I was on a downward spiral. I started seeing her and living two lives, started taking drugs more drugs, get back on the drugs, the Albanians are around and my lifestyle, my lifestyle starts to get a bit sort of hectic, you know. Um, and when you say she's into witchcraft, what did she actually do? Well, she was a high-class escort. So she used to, guys used to pay a lot of money, she used to go to certain houses and she, she used to tell me some of the things she used to, sometimes she wouldn't even touch her. And these people would be high up society people like, some judges or whatever, or lawyers or whatever like that. You know, she'd come like that, but, you know, the drugs are involved, so the mind goes, perversion kicks in, and you're doing this and that, you're thinking like this, and then we start going around the, the world, start falling ACDC, get right into it, you know, um, travelling here, there, followed, spent, I think, I think on a concert in the, concert in New York, um, I bought two row four row A tickets for guys at the work. I think it was some of the tickets were 18 grand. Like crazy, crazy money. Just no caring, really, you know. And if she was doing witchcraft, did you see her doing this? Like, what did she actually... She used um... to go to the magic shop and she used to tell me about this and spells and this and that. And I can remember I met her one, her mother one night and she said, she's a Jezebel. And I was like, Jezebel, what's that? I didn't have any clue, but I was I had this unusual attraction to her. It was like I could not... 
could not get away and she would send me things on my computer that would have been like pentagrams and fire and that, like things we'd do. she would have sent it, be her dancing behind it and that. I was thinking, what is sort of this about, you know? And then the wife, well, Amanda found out, she's went nuts. We went over in conjunction, we are on a holiday or something like that. I bought an antique Buddha. An antique, you know, I have to go higher, don't I? During this time or around this time. I buy an antique Buddha and I stick it in my house. Right, fine. I'm getting into the yoga, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. She, David Icke books, shamanism, I'm sort of... Company's going well, you know, I'm like, I didn't have to be there so much. And then, um, so it ended, and I had a dream that I turned into homosexual. Now, I'll tell you, if you asked me if I would have done that, any time like that, I would have said, you know what, there's more chance of me flying to the moon. But I had this dream, and it was like i seen this shop. In the dream, i seen this shop and this sign that was like a heart with a triangle. It was like... Can, I can remember the dream because I can remember I said to Amanda, I says, I was just about to tell her the dream. And I thought, no, I pulled back. And you know what? I really, to this day, I wish I told her that. You know, I was a, it was a maddest dream of turning homosexual and there was a sign for a shop. And it happened. So how did that happen? I ended up, I'm, I'm, this time now, I'm, I'm, I'm taking far too much drugs. I'm on these drugs a lot. I'm taking growth hormone as well. I'm putting a lot of growth hormone hormones into my body. Um, and then I ended up, this person that I introduced to someone else who's a almost effeminate homosexual, like a girl, makeup and all that. I was in the toilet. I mean, I've ended up doing it. So it was a trans person, would you say? Ish, yeah. Looked, yeah. looked feminine. Looked feminine, but guy. Yeah. But with a girl, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I ended up going into this. I'm, the company's still going, but I'm like off the. I'm off it, you know. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm. I've got this thing in my head. We've got to get a shop. This shop's got to be built. This temple's got to be built. It's in my head. You know, this time I'm going around and I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm going up to people and I'm able to say their names and their. I'm going out with the guys at the work and I'm even doing it. I'm guessing people's names. I'm saying your son's this age and you're a teacher. And they're like, how can you do that? I didn't know I could do it myself. But I was going to find out a few years later, I'll tell you. So I ended up building this shop. It's all that's in my head. Always in my head was getting that shop. No matter how I had done it, I split up for the wife because obviously with what was going on, it couldn't have continued. I wouldn't have allowed that to do it. It was very early and when that first started, I stopped. And the witch and is gone as well. She's out the window, yeah. So this is going on, this person's a hairdresser and I get this shop and I start getting, I do it up like something at New York, something, a bit, something like New York. I spend a lot of money. I get the whole bottom floor renovated. I start getting people in there doing all tarot cards. I've read about David Dyke's books. I'm like, do you know what? This is all good. This sorcery and, um, you know, the, the, I believe what's going on here. I believe that we can tap into this area with stuff and different things and um yeah so that was going on for a couple of years at one business of the year we saw an fm i was having thoughts in my head like 
mad thoughts like coming in my head like evil thoughts and that you know it's like a whole lot of strange things went on and uh, one day I, I phoned my friend up for the church and I says this and I says I hadn't been I thought I can never go back to a church now I thought you know look at my life how could I how could someone like me go into a church again do you know what I mean a church as in building yeah so I've ended up um phoning this guy I've ended up getting a beretta I was bought a beretta on this and I was like it's off the wall really and then my friend went to the up to my house he says you need to get to church I thought yeah there's something wrong I thought, how have I even, even ended up in this position and during that transition of time as well I ended up getting these tattoos on me and they were all like esoteric tattoos and um, when I came back from the holiday with the, with the Buddha um, I had a phone call from a woman called Leslie Kenton right on cue it was strange because when I brought that Buddha over read those books She's called up. She says, my name is Leslie Kenton. Have you heard of the Lizard Agenda? I went, what? I think this is nuts. I've just read that book. I meant to bring you up my folder because she gave us, we moved her in New Zealand. And um, I was like, wow. She goes, do you know David Icke? And I was like, yeah, I just read his book. She goes, need to talk to you. There's some kind of calling on your life. Do you know what he's doing? I said, this is mad. I've just read this. It was all, like, done at a certain time that was too real. Do you understand? For it to be anything like, you know, I got back from that from that holiday. The accountant had made a 74 grand mistake in the ledger with the company. We thought we had 74 grand more than we had. It was, it was a bit of a nightmare. And um, this stuff was, it was just going on. It was a very confusing time. But I've ended up with this shop, the Kenton, and that's back in the background. I'm... I'm spiraling into all this occult stuff with this shop and that's all done up and there's a schemes I've ended up going to that church one day and someone prayed in tongues it's like tongues is a language that Christians use born again Christians it's a it's, 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 it's a language where they directly can talk to they get a message from God you know someone spoke in tongues and they said Someone interpreted it. They said there is someone in this church who is in a lot of trouble and they're going to go through the fire. And that person, if they have faith in me, I will take you through that fire. I knew it was me. I just knew it. I knew it. Oh, it was terrible. How I got myself in that situation and that kind of relationship, it was like, how did I even get there, you know? I had everything, really. You know, going for me, the family and the business. But it happened, you know. And uh, so moving on, I ended up in the church. But this gay guy who's trying to kill himself because I'm saying, like, you know, I'm going with the Lord here. I can't do this. I'm, I'm walking away. He's tried to kill himself two or three times. So I'm, but I'm tied into the shop with this guy. How yeah? has he tried to kill himself? What What method? OD, two or three ODs, I'm feeling sorry for him. So there was that that going on in it, that kind of thing. Um, but I genuinely felt sorry because of, you know, I, you know I, I, that few, that, that time I spent in that scene, I've seen a lot of broken people who were all right, they just wanted love. Do you understand? Like they, 
they needed it. And I, I noticed with a lot of them, they they had a lot of like um, a lot of the people that I met during that scene had had a lot of sexual abuse as children. That person, that uh, effeminate that I seen, he was raped by a paedophile when he was thirteen, fourteen. <sighs> so his whole identity was gone, you know. He used to wear the makeup, he used to think, you know, and being like in, in the Buddhism, you're thinking, oh, it doesn't matter. None of this stuff matters. There's no male, there's no female. In my head, at that time, I thought there's no male, there's no female, there's no this and that. You know, I really genuinely thought I was never attracted to his private parts, but that doesn't matter. It was still what I was doing. Do you understand? So he's tried to kill himself, and then I'm tied into this place, and there's an award ceremony going on. So I go into this awards ceremony. After I'd been in the church two weeks before, and someone says, you're going to go through the fire. Okay. Then I think it was the next week, somebody said, again, there was prayers. They says, listen, so a guy came up to me, he says, you're going to have a two-year demonic battle and you're going to meet a guy who works with prisons. That was it. So I'll tell you what happened. This was in church. The guy said his name's Brian. He's a school teacher. He went to King's Church. So I went to this Mahayana Awards thing and it won the business of the year with Sovereign FM. Who's sitting across from me? John Lawson. He says, looked at me. I went, how are you doing? He goes, where are you from, pal? I went, from Edinburgh, he says, what are you doing here? I goes, I'm a Christian. He said, you're a Christian? He said, you got coke hanging off your nose and you're a homosexual. How can you be a Christian, mate? So that was it. I met John Lawson. He says, I have to come and speak to you. He said, I'll meet you at this time. So I went to meet him. We spoke. He came up my house and prayed. Something happened. Something where he was praying, something came off the wall. That was the start of it. He says... I was had a good chat with him. I was on a bit of repentance. He says, you have got demons, Brian. He said, you need to go to a place called ALL Ministries. I told him exactly how I felt, what my mind was like. He says, you have to go there. And he, he was so kind enough that, we went over my whole life and spoke about a few things and that. He says, you know, I've got so much stuff there that, bondage it's called, you know, bondage and past and especially with the occult stuff. Yeah, a lot of occult. How deep were you into the occult? Well, I was I had a shop doing it, didn't I? I was, I was renting rooms to them all, doing it all. So very much. So were you considered like a, a Satanist or a high priest or anything no, like that? No, nothing like that. I just had a shop that done what would have been called New Age healing. Tarot cards and this and that and mediums and, you know, Thai massage, tattoo removal, makeup downstairs and all that. And then I was like, I was wedged into the shop. So I was going through this battle. He got me into LL Ministries. And the first thing it was, was uh, I was there and I was like, that place was fully people who were really in, in a bad way. Like people who demonized, heavily demonized people go there. All different things. I'll, I'll talk to you about that later on, but that was the start of the journey. I was in there, prayer ministry, in a room. I didn't know what was going on. I was tired and they were talking to me about my life and they were praying and I was repenting this stuff and they were praying over me. And it just went on for 
a weekend and I was out of there and then a shop fiasco was carrying on. Things weren't right, you know. The, the weirdest things were going on. It makes me sick thinking about it, really. I'd be, I'd see shadows or, you know, I'd have this going on or whatever and break up with the family. It was, I was getting to a, I was in a bad place, like, you know. Um, so he sort of walked me through a lot of things, John, during that time. He was there for me, he helped me out. And eventually, I broke away from the shop. I'll never forget it. I was like, I got, there was so much going on during that time. I mean, weird, weird stuff was going on. Abnormal stuff, you know, that was um, just so strange. I mean, I can remember one time, like, I was in a flat and then one day, I don't know what it was, you know, it was during this two-year period. I don't know if I was lonely or whatever. I phoned a, I phoned a, I phoned a hooker up just to come up or whatever it was. And she came up and uh, I thought, do you know what? I've been going to this church and I've done this. Why have I done this? So John Lawson came in and I said, listen, I says, I don't know why I've done this. I go to church, why am I doing it? I didn't know why I was doing this stuff. And uh, I repented a bit and then he opened the Bible and he said, uh, he said the words from this Bible. My body started kicking, kicking, kicking up, down at this. And my blood, it was like my blood reversed in my body, man. Holy reverse like this. Oh, I was in trouble, man. I knew there was something not in me. I tell you, my eyes, it was like burns. The focus on these words, it was intense. It wasn't like me there. My arms, goose pimples are. Yeah. The hatred for these words that came out of this book, I'll tell you, I had a demon in me, man. Still, I was scared. Very scared. I was like, I used to sleep with the lights on and the Bible going and I just knew sometimes my TV would turn itself on by itself. Sometimes there'd be a slammed door. Just things that you fear, you're in fear, you know. You're in fear and... Uh, that sort of night sort of completely changed my life. And then I can remember phoning John Lawson and I said, John, do you know? I says, I cannot believe how real this is. I think this is, a, you know, all the years. And I'm messing about and I'm in and out and I'm really, really never stable really in my life. Something always going on, you know, or, or, or erratic lifestyle. Says John. I said, I cannot believe how real this is. And I've been going in and out of Lel, little bits and that. I'm praying I'm serious now. I'm very serious. I'm getting serious here. I start like reading scripture, reading, do you know, I'm like, what's going on? And little things here and there when he right and uh, I ended up really Saying, do you know what Jonah says? This is real. Jesus Christ is real. Demons are real. I had one in me. My ears are popping a little bit now, but 
I'll tell you something, they probably have my whole life. Even John said that from very young. Do, do you think that when you were young and your nan, I think it had died, and you said, you said, I hate you, God, or something, do you think that allowed... Well, who knows? An, an entry point. It could have been through family generational. But anyway, I'm like, I have to. I'm praying. I've got this shop line where this guy's playing up. He's playing up a lot. He's causing problems. He's not turning in. The staff aren't going in. I wasn't going to have any money. I was panicking. But you, in hindsight, it didn't matter thinking back. But I prayed, I said, you know. I says, I will serve you if you let this go. If you can, you know, I was serious. And the shop sold. Things were going on. And I thought, I have to go. I'm going to pack that bag. I'm going to forget about everything. And I'm going to go to the Salel Ministries. And I went there. And I stayed there for, I was there for a year. It was nine months. And I stayed there and I had a very complex life. Eh? Very complex, very complex. Spent a lot of time in Thailand, here, there, doing this, doing that. A lot of very sinful life, a very debaucherous, very, you know, a lot of, sex, a lot of drugs, a lot of money, a lot of violence, knife crime, gun crime, a lot of, a lot of things in my life led me down a path. But I'll tell you something. I realised things when I went in there. It taught me about things like forgiveness. He was sitting in a class and then people had come in there. Some people that were there during that time, had some people were ex-satanically ritually abused people that were in there, needing healing, proper healing. And I needed healing. And my wounds went way back. My wounds went way, way back. To my father, I think my real father neglecting me. Because when they spoke about it, I had a real dad and a stepdad, didn't I? And the guy came up with a story. He came up there and he he says about his mum and dad, and it was very similar to my story. And it twinged me inside. He said I could remember that that, that my real dad had went away and had two Went away with another family and left, and I was I felt the anger coming up. And I went outside, and they got you to hit a hit a tree sort of thing or something, and then they would get you in a room and they'd do what's called deliverance ministry, and eat different kinds of aspects of your whole life. One could be your childhood. I was in for eight hours deliverance for these tattoos alone, because when you get tattoos in your body. You're cutting yourself, especially esoteric tattoos. And you can see everyone in mine are. Everyone I had was. So every one of them, I had to repent in a room for about seven or eight hours during a deliverance session. My face was taking shapes that I never really knew it had. So there's so much more to this world, Sean, than you would ever, ever imagine, my friend. And I'll tell you something. Jesus Christ has authority in the spiritual realm. And I promise you this, he's coming back very, very soon. Well, you've certainly lived it. Bloody hell, what a story. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. And how is your life now? 
I came out there like a little baby. I came out there. I thought I had a little bit of money and then I paid someone to do a business. John knows about it and do a internet business, paid them thousands of pounds because someone who worked for the uh, company, I used to pay him 30 or 40 grand a year and he got it all to the top of Google. So when I got out, I'd been doing this for a couple of years on this project, all like I did every county in the UK, 20, 20 towns each county, loads of pages, hundreds and hundreds of pages. It was going to be like a lead generator and he ripped me off. Mm. And I had to forgive him. Now you take me back. It was testing. But you know what? I told him a testimony and he started shaking. And he thought, you're not going to eat. I said, I went in there and I was angry. I came outside. And then I was like, you're going to have to apologise to him for even the way you think. So I apologised to him after he ripped me off. And I said, I forgive you. Then I got outside. I had a phone call from a guy that John was called Tony Macy. As soon as I forgave him, went outside. Tony Macy phoned me up. I didn't even phone him. He says, I've got to put some money in your bank. I says, what do you mean money in my bank? He says, somebody I expect like £200. Do you put three grand in my bank? As soon as I forgave him. So, out the ministry. Wow, what an experience. I tell you, when I was in there, I experienced some things and I also became a prayer minister when I was in there for people who have the most terrible conditions. I prayed for people who, as bad as pornography, ripping families up, which the vile pornography does all over the world. You know, it takes the minds of the young people and they start touching themselves, don't they? And they start getting an idea how to treat women wrong and all that. Um, for, for as little thing as pornography to someone who is having sex with animals. Oh, God. Got demons in them. Demonized people. That's I've sat with them and prayed in the name of Jesus, and I've seen entities leave people quite a lot over the last four years. Now I went in there with my background, and I would have thought, do you know what? What chance have I got in a Christian world? In my background, but do you know what? You've always got a new stack, a new chance in, in, in life with Christ because Christ reconciles everything. He heals, he heals. Everything is made by Him, for Him, and through Him. You know, the, our human calendar two thousand years ago is based on that cross. Someone was there. Someone was there. You know, so far away from religion. It's nothing to do with religion. It's about faith. His faith, faith, faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many people didn't understand it. They look at the Roman Catholic Church, they look at the Anglican Church, and religion gives Christianity a bad name. This is how you know God is by reading this. It's the most powerful, powerful, life-changing, supernatural words in here that change the most wicked men, minds and heart. And also gives them eternal life. 
when they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross and rose on the third day and ascended to heaven, but was also seen by 500 people. 500 people. That little story, that story there in the middle, how come it got so big all over the world? Something major happened to you. It changed the course of history. And we are so lost right now in this country. We are so, so lost. You think things are coming to a head? Absolutely. In what way? Let me, uh, how, how long are we? Yeah, we're good. We've got a little bit more time left. How long? Um, approximately 15 minutes. Okay. Well, this is what uh, Jesus Christ says. I think if we look at the world right now, um, we can see that there's a a, bill, a certain bill way the number sixes came in in America. We have to be six foot apart at the moment. Things are never ever going to really be the same, I believe, again. Um, funny enough, I spoke to John Lusson four years ago and he said, you know, Donald Trump could probably be here to introduce the Antichrist. It says here in Revelation thirteen fifteen eight. it says, He was granted both power to breathe to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, as many that would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads. And no one may be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of the man. It is 666. So do you think that the prevalence of Satanism and the occult in the elites is a factor in this? Absolutely. I think we are coming into a time unprecedented in human history. You know, my life has been completely turned around. I don't even think the way I used to. I have a different heart. I have a different mind. And I will tell you, I'm totally transformed. Like, if you told me about pornography or even looking at someone the wrong way, my heart would feel different about it. I've changed, you know. And that's what it says in the Word of God. It says, you know, it says, basically, I'll give you a new heart and a new mind. Plus, you have salvation and eternal life. When you leave here, I've went down a lot of roads, my friend. And you know what? I've came to tell you this is something that, something that you don't mess with. You don't mess with this stuff here. Um, there's a spiritual war going on. Jesus Christ is slandered in Hollywood. Every foul word you'll hear is about Jesus Christ. Everything in the BBC is that. Even Netflix are making up films about them saying this and that but do you know something do you know why they do it because they're run by satanists that's why and they're there to confuse the masses so that you'll think it's all a joke but do you know where you're all going you're all going down the broad road to hell if you didn't repent of your sins proclaim your savior get born again in his name and get baptized and get into this i really mean it you don't know where you're going you've no idea i have seen things I have seen things in people and stories, and you know a bit about the satanic side of it. How do you beat the satanic side? There was only one person who ever did. 
Lucifer's in here, Zaya, and Ezekiel. He's actually explained who he is. These people worship him. Only one person ever beat him. Jesus Christ on that cross. Do you think there's hope with these elites, though, who like Epstein getting exposed and people getting... There's more people coming forward now talking about the satanic ritual abuse. And it's like people have got it targeted and there's hope, perhaps? There's hope for them if they repent and come out of it. But so many of the times, a lot of them are under strongholds. You know, I've been like, since I be, since I started with what I've been doing, I've been over to New York on mission, right in the middle of Times Square, proclaiming the gospel. I've been in Toronto, I've been in Romania, proclaiming the gospel, doing prayer ministry. I've seen a guy getting deliverance right in the street in Toronto that was just at Rikers Island. A guy who had demons in him. And he proclaimed Jesus and you've seen the break and this change in his face just drops off the people. We're going to see a lot more of this in the next few years, I believe. Um, something that we didn't really like to speak about, the demonic and all that and what it is, but everybody knows this is a real thing. But what they didn't understand because it's so thrown in everybody to slander it is that name, Jesus Christ in Nazareth. It changed my life. But not just that. He put me on a mission field where I can go and proclaim the gospel to people and dispossess that enemy of people's souls. And also what I do do is I can expose that enemy because he's so in your face and everybody's face all around you that you just don't even see it. When you say dispossess, can you or John Lawson perform exorcisms? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call anything an exorcism. I would call it deliverance. You know, it, deliverance is, we can do deliverance on someone when we take authority. If someone sits down and repents, if we take authority in the name of Jesus after the repentance. But true deliverance comes from reading this. Walking in the healing. Because you have, you have, um, your mind has to change. It takes time for your mind to change. It takes time for you to change. You have strongholds in your mind, behaviours and behaviour patterns. You see, it says in the word of God, the weapons of my warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You start saying these words in this book and you get someone who is demon possessed. You will see them jumping. You will see them move just by the words. And you've, you've physically seen the demons come out of these people. They start shaking in, and in stuff. In different ways, yeah. What's the most intense thing you've seen? The most intense thing I've seen is someone curling up like a baby, screaming and screaming and screaming in a hall full of people. Um, and even when they stop, I've seen that, yeah. Like horror stories here and there, you didn't really have to hear. You know, it says in here in 2 Corinthians 4, 1, 6, it says, Therefore, since we have this ministry and we have received mercy, we do not lose heart but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, 
and ourselves your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know in the Bible, do you know who the, the, the God of this world is? It's Satan. We're born in the original sin. Some of you is a lot worse than others. You know, my family background, my mother's, my grandmother, um, my mum's, someone in my family line was into witchcraft a lot. And uh, so the other wasn't, my dad's was into Freemasonry. So I got born into, unfortunately, a generational sin line that was quite bad. So generational sin, getting born in your, you know, the sins of your forefathers come through, really. So if people watching this want to join your mission or they are looking for help or they know someone who's has got this problem with the demons like you've been through, how can they contact you and, and get help? And... Um, through John Wedger. Through John Wedger? Yeah, through his foundation, yeah. And I would just like to say that John Wedger really is someone who's, I think he's the most, you know, in the in the word of God it said there is no, there's no one righteous not one. We've all we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know. We've all told a lie. You know, it's like funny because even my past or even like anybody really, if they've repented and asked Jesus into their life, been baptized and walked that walk, they'll be saved. And if some person that you would probably think would be a middle class person and look like they've done nothing wrong, they'll go to hell because they've never repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I didn't, I didn't sit here talking about this. I didn't even want to come and talk about this, to be honest with you. But the only reason I'll come and talk about this on your channel is to is for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in my life and the way he's changed. I'm now a married man. We have a lovely wife who's a minister, who's very understanding, who I actually ask her opinion on a lot of things. And she puts me in my place when I'm quite wrong, which I quite like that. She's lovely. Her name's Lillian. You know, it's been a long road for me. Um, but who would have thought I would have ended up a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Eh? Well, you've started out. Bloody hell. So what we're going to do is we're going to put the in the description box below this video, we're going to put a link uh, for John Wedger's stuff. If you want to contact Brian through John Wedger, are you on any socials like Facebook or anything like that? I'm on that, yeah. I'm, I'm on it, yeah. Do you want people to go on your Facebook or is not, that just not a really, personal just, thing? Not really, just contact through the foundation. I yeah. just say as well that John Wedger, you know, he's he's a guy who goes out there and he, he holds down three jobs. And this guy lives, he's born again now. He didn't even, but now he's born again, but he's getting baptized tomorrow, actually. He's accepted the Lord. And, you know, we didn't even know anything unless we read this word. These words change us. Um, it's about a personal relationship. It's not about going to church, the church building. It does not say in the, the, the word of God, go to church on a Sunday. It doesn't he say that? It says the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is functioning under Christ's head. And what we do is, uh, we, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's about 20% about us and 80% of what he wants us to do. And, you know, you just have to look at the world situation right now. All the, all the religions have now joined together under one religion. Um, children are blinded in this country with evolution um, materialism and religion in this country keeps people from Jesus because it's so plastered on the media and mocked on the media but I tell you what when you have lived my life or when you have spent time 
Little Ministries, like I have, and you've seen the horrendous state that these people come in when they have these demons in them mm. and how they, what they make people do. I'll tell you, the stories I could tell you, I could tell, I could sit down here for an hour telling you stories about different individuals that would have made your hair curl up. I think you're understanding, but do you know what? I will tell you something, my friend. They get their freedom in Jesus Christ. It's a spirit. We worship God in spirit and truth. It's nothing to do with crosses or emblems and that. It's your faith. It's between you believing in the Lord and you believing it. It says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You just have to read your Bible and know it and pray. Do you, want, that, do you want to give us one of those stories, her curling stories? I'll tell you a quite, a, quite a nice story, actually. I had a chap who was in Helmand Province. His name was Adam Pugh. And he used to be, he was a regimental sergeant major. Of what regiment, I don't know. And he was in Helmand Province and he had the Apache helicopters coming in. The, I don't know how many. And they friendly fired his whole battalion. And these rounds must have been, they're bigger than 766 points. I think they're 15 cal, 20 cal. They're huge. So that would have been like me putting water over your face, yeah? His whole troop got wiped out. And he was the only one. I think he got injured, but no badly. But there was the chances of not getting hit by the rounds were minimal. He knew there was a God. He knew he's a minister now. He was at Alel. I'd done some prayer ministry with him there. And now he's out there reaching the lost and doing prayer ministry with other people who are in bondage. See, we get caught up in bondage. It could be TV. It could be sex or sex life. You know, what we watch, what we listen to really affects us in cars, the wrong music. You know, it's strange because I come from this where I've came from and I ended up here. You've had your walk, Sean, you know. So you've ended up where you are. And you've ended up in this spiritual walk, tapping into spiritualism. Do you know something? I testify to you today to you, my friend. Listen to my words to you. I would not want to wake up on the other side of here. Forget that new age stuff. Look how far I went into it. Look what I went through, sheer hell. And I know the bloody Jesus Christ is so strong. We didn't, we didn't celebrate. Look at the cross. The cross, we give our sin to the cross. Doesn't matter what we do, doesn't matter what we've done, we give the sin to the cross, but you know what we celebrate? The resurrection. Because we get resurrected in the spirit. <laughs> when we repent and become born again, we become a new creation in Christ. And I tell you what, you certainly do. You start, if you keep reading this, throughout time and changes, you will not think the same way. You, The things that you did, that they used to do, you really want to do, they'll repulse you. People think you're weird. People think they're changing me. They're like this, you know, but there's no acting here. This is where I am and it's what I'm doing. Well, we appreciate you coming on and you've gone from such an insanely dark place to end up on such a positive note. It is commendable that you've got this, you're on this mission now and you're helping other people who are going through things. So to so all the people out there watching this then, Please let us know in the comment section below what you thought of today's podcast. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logo is bottom right-hand corner. Huge thank you to people who donated to enable us to film in the professional studio with sound engineer and 
the cameraman James and Joe to keep everything coming at this quality. All the links, if you want to donate, are in the description box as well. And if you want to get hold of Brian, like I said, we have got the links to John Wedger down there. If you've not seen John Wedger in action, we've done two interviews with him whereby he is whistleblowing on what he experienced in the police. And also, John Lawson was mentioned. We've got our interview with him, Hit Team Commander. All those interviews are down there in the True Crime podcast link. So thank you very much for watching. Cheers, man, for coming up. Yeah, yeah, you, mate. Nice to meet you, yeah. Renault. It's award season, and the Renault E-Tech range has seven wins and counting. Our new E-Tech event is your chance to find out why. Between the 3rd of February and the 3rd of April, order any new car from the hybrid range and get three years servicing free. There's never been a better time to drive off with an award-winning hybrid. Visit Glyn Hopkins Renault for a test drive. Servicing based on 10,000 miles per annum with 6.4% APR representative. PCP Mobilized Financial Services, 18 plus, T's and C's apply. Faffin. Yoke. Tabs off. Keeper let. Baltic. Melter. Corton. That's us now. Wondering what all that means? We know a way you can find out. Go to Northern Ireland as a visitor. Come back a local. Book now at easyjet.com. <laughs>